First tonight, I would like to congratulate you for making it through the second day. And one of my colleagues, uh, Mary Grace Orr, often describes the first few days, or the first day especially, as a kind of swamp, you know, where, it's, where we're, it's just a morass of stuff in our minds and our bodies feel terrible. And we've talked about that a lot. But, today, but the second day is often even more swampy. So to actually sustain practice through a, a day like today is, uh, is challenging, and we really appreciate your staying with it. The Buddha described what you're doing as, uh, as going against the stream. We really are swimming against uh, literally uh, lifetimes of, of habit, of doing anything but opening to life as it is. So it's really a huge accomplishment to even for two days in the span of one's life to stop and keep quiet and look within and, and just see what's there. It's, uh, it's not easy. And the instruction we've been giving you has been to, um, in some way, encapsulated in a phrase, and I'm not sure who gave this phrase, but it goes like this, nothing to do, nowhere to go, and no one to be. Maybe you can borrow this if you like. Nothing to do, nowhere to go, no one to be. These remind me of the, the fact that, the, that the, um, the whole point of our practice is arrived at in the very moment that you are in right now that each of us, as we've mentioned in various ways, is, as we are right now, what we're looking for. It really goes against what our mind was, your mind was probably very busy uh, looking for somebody else today, looking for a different moment. Did any of you notice tendency to go out into the imagined future? Any of you futurize today? Any of you reminisce? But this habit of going out of this vital present to, to imaginary places is, is built in. It's built into our tendencies, but it masks the um, invitation, the, what's sometimes called an open secret, that what we're looking for is right here. And that not one person here, no matter what your circumstances, no matter what your life situation, not one person here needs to lift out of this moment to find the relief that you're ultimately looking for. That in fact, it is our very tendency to go out of ourselves in search that uh, obscures that, that um, simple point. So all the teachings point uh, to the, um, the living Dharma, the living truth, the... the when I say this, I just see all of you and I think of the, the divinity. Not just the divinity that is in you, but the divinity that is you. The perfect, unique manifestation of life that each of us is. The mystery that if we could just open to and sense, it might loosen some of that tendency to, to uh, look elsewhere for that sense of of wonder, the sense of mystery. I love to travel. 
But I can't, uh, there's been no, I've traveled really a lot in my life, but there's been no interesting, more interesting journey than within the nature of my own mind. Exploring the movements of sensation and moods and thoughts and images. And it is, it's endlessly uh, interesting, endlessly unfolding. And this is what we're inviting you to do, to begin the, not so much the outer journey, but that inner journey. We... Thich Nhat Hanh, who Anna quoted last night in his poem called Froglessness, that reminds us not to, to stay on the plate, not to uh, be lost in our plans so much, he had another beautiful passage that has really informed uh, my own practice in life. And it's a challenge, and it, it's just echoing again what I just said. He says, uh, you who, the rich, who are the richest person on earth, who've been going around begging for a living, stop being the destitute child. Come home, reclaim your heritage. You who are the richest person on earth who've been going around begging for a living, stop being the destitute child. Come home, reclaim your heritage. So the Buddha realized, and why we're here, we're here very dependent on a realization that occurred in the heart and mind of the Buddha. And he was sitting under his Bodhi tree, and you're sitting under your Bodhi tree, but he was there based on the conditions of his life. They came together in such a way that he, he had certain realizations. And he realized that this rich heritage is found when we see when we have vision and knowledge of things just the way they are. The Pali expression is yata bhuta, things as they are, things as they have come to be. The way it is, the dharma, the truth, that it is through this insight knowledge, seeing how our life actually is, that this is what frees our heart, allows us to have what the Buddha called the sure heart's release. Not because we created a new reality, but we unpeeled, we um, uncovered what's always and already here. And it is through clear seeing that our hearts are released from clinging. Clinging is uh, is born of, of holding on, confusion. It's born of ignorance. It's born of not seeing clearly. When we really see clearly how things are, clinging and confusion, it, clinging doesn't make any sense. For example, I was thinking about this today. It's so simple, but it's so obvious, but it's so easily overlooked. When you realize that you're holding your breath, how many of you have realized you were holding your breath before? That you weren't really breathing? Now, when you realize that you were holding your breath, did you keep holding your breath? Our natural intelligence, when we see that we're holding our breath, the natural response of our body is to take a big breath. Every time when I, one of the things that we will offer to have you do as we go along in the practice is to begin to notice, and we've been alluding to it, but notice how it is you're relating to what it is that's going on. 
You can notice whether you're straining to make something happen, whether you're resisting or pushing things away, or whether you're, um, you're building a story about whatever it is that's going on. You're becoming very identified with your experience. Now, when this goes unnoticed, we, our bodies get tight, our minds get tight, we, we start getting really uncomfortable. But once you notice that you're straining in some form, do you keep straining? No. Every time I notice that I'm straining, the moment that that insight knowledge arises, that the, the moment that I recognize that, natural intelligence kicks in. It says, straining doesn't help. And we relax. So this may sound quite simplistic, but our practice comes down to seeing things clearly. Again, we're not here to create some new reality. We're here to be able to see things clearly. The idea is that if you see things the way they are, you will be less in contention with them. You'll fight with reality a lot less. Holding on when you see that it causes suffering doesn't make any sense. So ignorance, confusion, the the Buddha called ignorance, avijja. You can maybe look up this word sometime if it's interesting to you. But ignorance is what drives us to be reactive, to be fighting with ourselves and fighting with reality, fighting with our moment-to-moment experience. It's not really seeing it clearly. But the Buddha had a much bigger picture of what we are not seeing clearly, and that's what I want to speak about mostly tonight. What we fail to see, which is amazing, and, but it was true of him up until age 29. What we fail to see is that our life, any life, if you are born, the definition of birth is the leading cause of experiences of disharmony, of friction, of uneasiness, of uncomfortableness, of queasiness, of unsatisfactoriness. No one is immune from these experiences. Does that seem to resonate at all? Of course, when we're awake to these experiences, these same experiences, these uncomfortable experiences, don't cause uh, so much mental suffering. We don't get into, into a fight with them. But when they go unnoticed, our mind goes into, into a, an array of reactions to these facts, to the, to the uh, inevitable discomfort that we feel. If you're born, you feel it. Did you think you were the only one? That's the tendency, another tendency of mind. Another form of delusion is somehow we think we're the only one that's uncomfortable, that's queasy, that feels anxious or restless or or uh, has having a hard time bearing what's going on. How many of you had a, little, had a hard time bearing what was going on today? Just a few. Um, many people not so. Well, I appreciate ra- those who raise their hands. The other thing that we fail to notice, I was reminded of this today when I was thinking back to a, a book I read about 30 years ago, Many of you may have come across this book. It's called Shambhala, 
The Sacred Path of the Warrior by Trungpa Rinpoche, a Tibetan teacher. And in this book, the notion of a warrior is not somebody who's all pumped up and defended and with armor. And, and when you become a warrior, it's, you don't, as he put it, you don't hear Beethoven's Fifth Symphony go off. But his notion of the, uh, the sacred heart of warriorship is the realization that you are tender, that you are vulnerable. And one thing that we fail to notice that is universal, that is equal to all of us, is that we are profoundly vulnerable. We are profoundly tender. Um, fragile, even. Why are we fragile? Because the second, another definition of birth It's the leading cause of death. It's the leading cause of of sickness. It's the leading cause of, of aging. It's the leading cause of dying. It's the leading cause of experiencing in your life frustrated desire. It's the leading cause of feeling in your life a sense of wounded pride. It's the leading cause of basically not getting what you want and not wanting what you get. Everyone who is born into this life experiences this. It's not an aberration. It's how it is. This kind of unsatisfactoriness, this kind of stress comes if you are born. This was the Buddha's diagnosis of our condition. Among the other beautiful things about life, These are very difficult things about life. And he had, he didn't stop with this this description or this diagnosis. He, He followed it with a prescription for how to deal with it. He didn't say, which is basically what everything in our life, every advertisement in our life, every person in our life basically, except for the wise ones in our life, he didn't say, react with aversion, distract yourself. Just think about if we were to design a a worldly retreat. You came here tonight and I gave you worldly instructions. What would I say? Think all day. Get lost in thought. Satisfy every desire. Feed the wanting mind. Uh, Hold on tight. Control yourself. You don't hear much about renunciation, letting go, simplicity, being with things as they are. We hear exactly the opposite. We are trained, as I mentioned earlier, at going out of ourselves in search, of moving away from, from this truth. So the Buddha's prescription was welcome it, open to it. Don't, don't run from this fact. Open to your tender heart of warriorship. Open to your vulnerability. Rumi puts it this way. He says, the cure for pain is in the pain. Good and bad are mixed. If you don't have both, you're not one of us. And 
Hafiz, poet Hafiz, puts it this way. Don't surrender your loneliness so quickly. Let it cut more deep. Let it ferment and season you as few human or even divine ingredients can. He continues, something missing in my heart has made my, my, my eyes so sweet, my voice so tender, my need of the divine absolutely clear. That reminder that the cure for dealing with the vulnerability of our life is to open to it. Easy thing to talk about, but as you see, going against the stream of wanting to get away from it is very strongly conditioned. And it's why it, there's such a tendency to have a bumpy landing here. But you'll find that as you open to these, this simple truth, hard to bear but true, that, our, that we are subject to a lot of vulnerability, we begin to, uh, f- to ease our relationship with it, not be so in contention with our life as it is. Because every one of us, if we are born, will be met with the insecurities of what are called the eight worldly winds. They, they blow through everybody's life. Sometimes we will be praised, Sometimes we will be blamed. Sometimes we will have gain. Sometimes we will have loss. Sometimes pleasure. Sometimes pain. Sometimes fame. Sometimes shame. These winds blow through our lives completely unbidden, uh, beyond our will or wish, and somehow we have that same urge to be able to navigate these winds. But they don't seem to, it does not, it hasn't seemed to make anyone well or happy to try to run from them or avoid them. The cure for pain is in the pain. As Helen Keller put it, security is mostly a superstition. It does not exist in nature, nor do children as a, as a whole experience it. Avoiding danger is no safer in the long run than outright exposure. Life is either a daring adventure or nothing. Admit it, Hafiz says. He says, admit something. Everyone you see, you say to them, love me. Of course, you do not say this out loud. Otherwise, someone would call the cops. Still, though, think about this, the great pull in us to connect. Why not become the one who lives with the full moon in each eye? That is always saying, with that sweet moon language, what every other eye in this world is dying to hear. We experience, we are vulnerable, we we depend on we are so dependent. And if we open to this, the beauty of opening to our vulnerability is it, and expanding our consciousness or awareness to include it, is it becomes absorbed into this great sense of presence, this great fullness. I forgot the person in the hall this morning who talked about when they let themselves experience the, the rattling, the discharge of not exercising, 
the word that they used when they said they, they just stayed with it a while, let themselves feel it. It became, it became a cause of a kind of healing. There's a deep rest that came from stopping the war, stopping the running. I'm not saying you shouldn't run, but often this is just symbolic for the tendency to continually, uh, as Rumi put it, run from silence. He says, die. Die right now. Your old life was an endless running from silence. Run out the side. Die and be quiet. Quietness is the surest sign that you've died, he said. This is what we're doing here. So the Buddha elaborated on this description or this diagnosis of of our condition. He he said there are basically three kinds of of distress that all of us have to learn how to navigate in our life. This is you know he started with it's uh, you, you may think why did he start with with how difficult things are things that are hard. Because he saw that our tendency is to, is to not look at it. And I, I know for me, when the first time that I heard some version of this same teaching, a teaching on the Four Noble Truths, I remember weeping because I was so touched that somebody was finally saying it. So there's some part of us that really wants to open to things the way they are. Yet our habit is, to, is not to see it. So just to elaborate a little more, he said there are basically three kinds of, of um, distress that we all have to deal with. First one I described already. It's called dukkha dukkha. Dukkha is the word for unsatisfactoriness, sometimes translated as suffering, but it's, that's not nuanced enough. It's that which is difficult to bear, stress, discomfort, uneasiness, uh, just r- a kind of roughness, uh, Things not being comfortable. There are three kinds. There's the the dukkha, dukkha, birth, sickness, old age, death, lamentation, grief, garden variety. Everybody has it. You're not alone. This is how it is. Second, he called anicca dukkha. Anicca is the word for impermanence. That even the best experience even the most delicious experience is subject to change and impermanence. And there, it leaves in its wake a little bit of uh, discomfort, a little sorrow. And the bigger losses leave big sorrow. But all that's subsumed under anicca dukkha, things that are hard to bear, that everybody experiences. The last one is called uh, sankara dukkha. And Sankara Dukkha, Sankara means, it has many different meanings, but it's basically conditions, conditioning. Conditions are such, or conditioning is such, that without any intention on our part, without, uh, without having decided every day, we have to get up and do it again. We have to get up and wash and clean and cook and shop and work and deal with noise and sound and all the challenges of life. And it, to, 
And it just keeps coming. There's a kind of relentlessness to it. And sometimes when we're really sensitive, and there are many people who we, are, we all have relatively thicker, thinner skin, but in retreat we start to pick up on, on how much we are, how much we are impinged upon every day by sights and sounds and smells and tastes and that those wonderful sense experiences that they aren't always as um, pleasant as we, as we think they are. There's a level to which they are uh, exhausting. And, and this is true. Everyone experiences some version of this. But yet, we tend to um, not really acknowledge it completely. That life isn't with for all its beauty and wonder and gloriousness and love, it's not all it's cracked up to be. How do you feel when I say that? Any of you start to fight a little? No, it's wonderful. Or does it resonate as, as how it is? Again, the Buddha said, get real, get real. And I say this because I, I would like to read this poem from Jennifer Wellwood called The Dakini Speaks, giving the same message. My friends, let's grow up. Let's stop pretending we don't know the deal here. Or if we truly haven't noticed, let's wake up and notice. Look, everything that can be lost will be lost. It's simple. How could we have missed it for so long? Let's grieve our losses fully like human right beings. But please, let's not be so shocked by them. Let's not act so betrayed as though life had broken her secret promise to us. Impermanence is life's only promise to us. And she keeps it with ruthless impeccability. To a child she seems cruel, but she is only wild and her compassion exquisitely precise. Brilliantly penetrating, luminous with truth, she strips away the unreal to show us the real. This is the true ride. Let's give ourselves to it. Let's stop making deals for a safe passage. There isn't one anyway, and the cost is too high. We're not children anymore. The true human adult gives everything for what cannot be lost. Let's dance the wild dance of no hope. Love that. So what keeps us bound in this, um, in being in contention, fighting with this, not finding, not finding a sense of well-being in the midst of this condition is this deeply conditioned habit. This is the Buddha's description or diagnosis of the second truth about uh, us uh, human beings. It's this deeply conditioned habit, tendency to want things to be different than the way they are. That comes, that arises very innocently out of those simple reactions, those simple feeling tones that uh, Anna and Sharda both spoke of, we have those valent, those, those feeling tones, pleasant, unpleasant, neutral. When things are unpleasant, 
the tendency very quickly is to move into liking, I mean into not liking. If that not liking goes unnoticed, that not liking hardens into aversion, hardens into, uh, it can harden into uh, to anger, rage, fear. And this is simply the, the elaborated version of a simple mental reaction of not liking. So it happens very quickly. But what it's done in this, uh, these reactions that are based on not actually seeing the nature of our experience is we've moved so far from, from being open to life as it is and, and incarnated or, or gotten lost in our imagination of how we would like it to be. When somebody comes into the hall, when you're perfectly quiet, makes a little bit of noise, there's a little bit of unpleasantness, then a little bit of reaction, that, and then reaction, that reaction often then generates a whole little story. Oh, hate that when people come in late. They're wrecking my practice. It becomes all about me. And pretty soon our mind is strategizing what we would say to that person, how we can arrange life so that I don't have to experience that. It all happens in it. And it can get really bad on retreat. We have a phenomena. And it's one of the hindrances, aversion. The beauty of practice, though, is these very hindrances, these very mental states that torment us, once we start being mindful of them, they become our path. They become the cause of, of freedom. So we actually pay attention to the state of aversion and it strengthens our mindfulness. We feel the pain of aversion and not liking and it actually tenderizes our hearts when we realize how painful it is. So that's the unique thing about humans is our difficulties can become the cause of, of our wisdom and freedom and our compassion. But nevertheless, that, averse, that react, reaction of response of aversion can easily, especially when there's not a lot of distraction going on on a retreat, it can really take off. And there's a phenomena called the VV. Have you ever heard this before? VV. It's Vipassana Vendetta. <laughs> Where something somebody does in the lunch line or the way they walk, the way they talk, the way, whatever it is, triggers some kind of little mild dislike. Again, it, there was just... When, all, when we get right down to those six experiences that Sharda was talking about, the totality of our life, seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, thinking, there was just a moment of one of the sense experiences that came, arose associated with unpleasantness. That's really what happened. But very quickly, our mind innocently goes into this big reaction. And in the, in the case of the VV, it becomes so strong that that person becomes the reason for all of your suffering. And it, it can really proliferate into a huge uh, you know, rage attack in our mind. And the same is true for the other, one of the other common hindrances, when something is pleasant. We see somebody who produces in us a, that instantaneous pleasant feeling, or we hear something or smell something, but we'll talk about it as a person, it's really just a moment of pleasure. 
entering one of the doors of perception, uh, the eyes, the ears, the nose, the tongue, the body, or, or a thought about that person. But when it goes unnoticed, it tends to lead quickly to liking. And liking then leads to wanting. Wanting then leads to clinging. Clinging leads to attachment. And pretty soon the pressure that's building from even the, even the feeling of liking something produces a little charge. And that hardens into this, this, um, this wild little thing called a VR, in the case of a person, called Vipassana Romance, where that person becomes the secret to all of your happiness, the answer to all your prayers, and the mind within five seconds mates, dates, (laughs) marries, travels, procreates, divorces, some variation on the theme of, of answering all our dreams. Of course, nothing has really happened. This all happens in our mind. But it leaves us, when we are in a state of craving, or a state of craving in the form of aversion, it leaves us in a state of bondage, a state of suspended happiness. The under a trance that says, and you probably felt this today, even at the end of some of the sittings when you were waiting for the bell to ring, That bell became the secret to happiness. (laughs) And until that bell rings, you're hanging on the edge of your seat, getting more and more and more and more uncomfortable, restless and agitated. Why? Because you were hostage to the imagined future, to that time when maybe you you would likely experience the relief that we do when we hear the bell ring but not realizing that it's not the bell that rings that gives us the relief that we want. What gives us the relief that we want? It's not the bell really, even though it's connected to it. What gives the relief is the loosening, the letting go of the state of waiting and wanting and hoping, expecting, dependency. So this habit of creating the conditions where in our minds the, the conditions of mental suffering all in reaction to the, the variations that life presents to us, the difficulties as well as the pleasures that life presents, it is the reactions of liking and disliking and then the hardened, hardened versions of those that brings to us the experience of mental suffering. So the Buddha described the cause of suffering as what he called tanha, or craving. I called it, it's just another form of being depend, having a sense that happiness depends on conditions being a certain way. And this puts us in an even greater state of vulnerability. Then we're happy if things go the way we want, unhappy if they don't. This is this kind of happiness the Buddha called um, the happiness of slavery, the happiness of bondage, and invite, invites us in our practice to consider the possibility of a different kind of well-being, a different kind of happiness. 
And I say happiness and well-being because you may, when you hear these teachings on distress, you may think, oh, this teaching's all about distress. But the Buddha was actually called Sukhiya, the happy one. And it's really all about, everything you're doing here is about happiness. It's about that universal desire to be happy and to be free of suffering. No one can be free of the basic distress of living. But the suffering, the mental suffering, the reactivity in our mind is completely optional and really depends on our clarity, depends on our wisdom, depends on clear perception of things the way they are. And this is what we're trying to do. We're trying to open to things the way they are. So the Buddha's Buddha's, uh, prescription for dealing with all the the many kinds of vulnerability that we experience in our life was to open to it. The prescription for how to deal with the cause of suffering, clinging, craving, having a mind that is uh, hostage to the the future, which never arrives anyway because it's just an idea. There really isn't one. But the prescription for dealing with that tendency to crave for what's next, to be obsessed with things needing to be different, is to let go, is to abandon that cause, is to release that tight fist of grasping. Hold your fist really tight for a moment, if you don't mind, and then let them go. The invitation of practice is to see how painful it is to hold on. hate to say it. Because if we really see that pain, it's no different than holding our breath. When we notice we're holding our breath, we, we take in a breath. There's a story that I will butcher if I try to tell, you, tell it uh, in the right way, but I'll give you the, the gist of it. But there's a story that comes out of India about the, the metaphor that's often used as the uh, for how our minds work is the the, um, the the monkey traps that they have in India. And it's kind of a, it's a painful thing to even, the image of it. But they create these traps where the monkey can put his or her hand into the trap to grab some food. But uh, the, and the monkey will grab the food but if the monkey tr- holds on to the food and tries to get their hand out, they can't get their hand out. And if they hold tight, too tightly to the food, they, they perish because they're apprehended and they, and they perish. But if that monkey could open its hand, it would just slide out and it would be free. So that monkey is, that freedom is right there. But the, uh, Monkey holds on because out of ignorance, out of confusion. And we are very much the same way. We just don't. We just want things to be different. Woody Allen put it this way, I don't mind dying. I just don't want to be there when it happens. (laughs) And uh, another poet or writer told this little story just to somehow not have to deal with 
with life in a way. It's called reverse living. Maybe you've heard this before. Life is tough. It takes up a lot of your time, all your weekends. And what do you get at the end of it? Death, a great reward. I think that the life cycle is all backwards. You should die first, get it, get it out of the way. Then live 20 years in an old age home. You get kicked out when you're too young. You get a gold watch, you go to work. You work 40 years until you're young enough to enjoy your retirement. You go to college. You party until you're ready for high school. <laughs> you, become <a> little <laughs> you become a little kid. You play. You have no responsibility. responsibilities. You become a little boy or girl. You go back into the womb. You spend your last nine months floating. And you finish off as a gleam in someone's eye. <laughs> and another story about uh, this wanting to go the other way. This is really the, the reason that we don't, uh, that we keep bound in our own version of the monkey trap. It's, this is a story, anonymous story, called The 84th Problem. Once a farmer went to tell the Buddha about his problems. He told the Buddha about his troubles farming, how either droughts or monsoons made his work difficult. He told the Buddha about his wife, how even though he loved her, there were certain things about her he wanted to change. Likewise with his children. Yes, he loved them, but they weren't turning out quite the way he wanted. When he was finished, he asked the Buddha how he could help him with his troubles. The Buddha said, I'm sorry, I can't help you. What do you mean, railed the farmer? You're supposed to be a great teacher. The Buddha replied, Sir, it's like this. All human beings have 83 problems. It's a fact of life. Sure, a few problems may go away now and then, but soon enough others will arise. So we'll always have 83 problems. The farmer responded indignantly. Then what's the good of all your teaching? The Buddha replied, My teaching can't help with the 83 problems, but perhaps it can help with the 84th problem. What's that? asked the farmer. The 84th problem is that we don't think we should have any problems. So, Unfortunately, these mental reactions of thinking we shouldn't have problems, our movement away from things the way they are, has led to a culture of what's called samsara, of an endless search for that future that never arrives. A culture that, that ends up being represented by characters that I have in this advertisement, a fellow named Spence, who, as it says in the advertisement, put a new twist on an old philosophy, where he says, to be one with everything, you have to have one of everything. We've become super consumers. And Sogyal Rinpoche speaks about this habit of mind. And I speak of this not just to tell us how crazy we are, even though that's one of the first things that you realize when you, when you practice. In fact, Bhante Gunaratna put it this way, somewhere in the process of meditation, you will come, to face, you will come face to face with the sudden realization that you are completely crazy. Your mind is a shrieking madhouse on wheels barreling down the hill, utterly out of control and hopeless. No problem. 
you are, you are not any crazier than you were yesterday. It's always been this way and you never noticed. But our tendency toward self-deception is so strong that it's sometimes useful to be uh, awakened by these reminders. And this is, I think, one of the values of the teaching. And hopefully it will help us incline toward uh, seeing how we live our lives and beginning to abandon the causes of suffering and to cultivate the causes of well-being. But Sogyal Rinpoche puts it this way, sometimes I think that the greatest achievement of samsara or of modern culture is its brilliant selling of samsara and its barren distractions. Modern society seems to me a celebration of all the things that lead away from the truth, make truth hard to live for and discourage people from even believing that it exists. And to think that all this springs from a civilization that claims to adore life but actually starves it of any real meaning, that endlessly speaks of making people happy, but in fact blocks their way to the source of real joy. This modern samsara feeds off an anxiety and a depression that it fosters and trains us all in and carefully nurtures with a consumer machine that needs to keep us greedy to keep going. Samsara is highly organized, versatile, sophisticated, It assaults us from every angle with its propaganda and creates an almost impregnable environment of addiction around us. The more we try to escape, the more we seem to fall into the traps it is so ingenious at setting for us. As one 18th century Lama put it, mesmerized by the sheer variety of perceptions, beings wander endlessly astray in this vicious cycle. Obsessed then with false hopes and dreams and ambitions which promise happiness, but lead only to, to misery. We are like people crawling through an endless desert, dying of thirst, and all that this samsara holds out to us to drink is a cup of salt water designed to make us even thirstier. So our, one of our lineage teachers, Ajahn Chah, put it this way, let go. Do everything with a mind that lets go. If you let go a little, you'll have a little peace. If you let go a lot, you'll have a lot of peace. If you let go completely, you'll have complete peace and freedom. Your struggles with the world as it is will come to an end. So the the next truth that the Buddha spoke about, the next diagnosis, what the was and is that there is an end to this mental suffering. There is the capacity in this very life to experience that sure heart's release, to find a, a to find within ourselves an immovable, an unshakable balance and freedom a capacity to meet all those worldly winds, the joys and the sorrows, with less reactivity, able to be with things just the way they are. And his prescription for this possibility is to realize it. And not even wait one moment to realize it. In the teachings you hear the expression to be seen here and now, to be realized every single moment that you are being 
uh, mindfully present. When you are in any moment not looking back, not looking ahead, not thinking things should be different than the way they are. And even if you are thinking things should be different to the, than the way they are, if you're noticing that thought, if you're simply here knowing what it is that's happening, you cannot, in the same moment of mindful attention, be holding on or pushing away. Try it. Notice what happens even right now. Even if you're experiencing something uncomfortable, this is your insight knowledge right now into the first noble truth. There's discomfort. It's like this. Notice if there's any reaction to that. Notice if there's any resistance. If you notice it, see what happens to it. And we'll invite you tomorrow to work with these different mental states. The mental states of want, the wanting mind, the aversive mind, not always, not just in relationship to the Vipassana romance or vendetta. It could be in anything. It could be the bell, it could be the lunch, it could be the Dharma talk, whatever it is that you're railing against or waiting for or grasping. We invite you to feel that, but right now. And notice that that state of mind, whatever it is, when met with the light of attention, can't withstand it. Nothing can withstand. No experience will um, remain static in the face of mindful attention. But don't believe me. And if you experience the loosening of that resistance or reaction to whatever is going on here, even you may be even reacting to what I'm saying. If you've experienced that, release it. This is your own version of abandoning the cause of suffering. And you may even realize a sense of relief right here on the spot. And finally... The Buddha didn't stop with that there is this potential for freedom and the prescription to realize it. He also said there is a path. There is a path that we create and cultivate in our life to, to realize and reinforce this cessation, this falling away of the reactivity in our mind, the end of suffering. And the center of that path, called the Noble Eightfold Path, is mindful attention, is loving kindness, is cultivating a kind attention, developing wise effort, cultivating things that are wholesome in our minds like love, generosity, patience, cultivating what is wholesome, letting go of the things and the habits that are not so helpful, training our attention again and again to stay where we are, and cultivate as much as we can the capacity to simply be mindful. Cultivate wise understanding that we, um, that we are not so separate from one another. And let, have, let that inform your, your intention to, uh, to grow in wisdom and non-harming. And renunciation, simplicity. And then let your actions that spring from, from those intentions 
lead to not causing harm with your speech, not causing harm with your sexuality, not causing harm with intoxicants, not, not hurting yourself or anyone else. If you follow this training of mindfulness, concentration, love, developing the, the, um, the three parts of practice, the ethical foundation, the training of our mind, and wise understanding, you will progressively, it's not by accident, you will progressively realize more and more the happiness of a Buddha. That sure heart's relief, that heart that can meet the joys and the sorrows uh, with equanimity and balance. As the Buddha put it, for one who clings, motion exists. But for one who clings not, there's no motion. Where no motion, where no motion is, there is stillness. Where stillness is, there's no craving. Where no craving is, there is neither coming nor going. Where neither coming nor going is, there is neither arising nor passing away. Where neither arising nor passing away is, there is neither this world, nor a world beyond, nor a state in between. This is the end of suffering. This is the joy of nirvana. Now, how far do we have to travel to touch this? Anybody want to say? Right here. Nowhere. Some reason the Buddha song, "Be a real nowhere man." <laughs> He's a real nowhere man. Sorry. So I want to end with uh, words of Ajahn Chah. And before I do that, just want to review the, these essential teachings that you can practice in real time. That there's discomfort. There's stress, things that are hard to bear. This must be welcomed. That's the prescription. You want to be able to say, I've really experimented with this. I've really opened to it. There's a cause to, to, our, mental, uh, to our mental suffering about that and its craving. This must be released or abandoned, let go. And we want to be able to say, I, just, I open to... I opened to, I saw the way I was holding on and, and my, my heart relaxed. Stop fighting so much. And the third truth, there's an end to suffering in our minds. And the prescription, this must be realized. So for yourself, moment to moment, you can realize an, an ease that may come. And there's a path. This must be cultivated. And that you're already doing by sitting and walking, being here, going against the stream of endless distraction. So I appreciate so much your practice, staying with it, and I want to end with Ajahn Chah. Don't worry about your mind wandering all over the place. Distractedness. Try to keep your mind here, in the present. Whatever there is that arises in your mind, Just notice it. Let it be. Let it go. Don't even wish to be rid of thoughts and experiences. 
then your mind will, be, will reach its natural state. No discriminating between good and bad, hot and cold, fast and slow. No me and no you. No self at all, just what there is. When you walk, there's no need to do anything special. Walk and see what there is. No need to cling to isolation or seclusion. Wherever you are, know yourself by being natural and noticing. If doubts arise, notice them. Come and go. It's very simple. Hold on to nothing. It is as though you're walking down a road. Periodically, you'll run into obstacles. When you meet defilements, obstacles, see them and overcome them by letting them go, letting them be. Don't think about the obstacles you've passed already. Don't worry about those you've not yet seen. Stick to the present. Don't be concerned about the length of the road or about a destination. Everything is changing. Whatever you pass, don't cling to it. Eventually, the mind will reach its natural balance where practice is automatic. All things will come and go of themselves. This is, a, this is meant for daily life, but I'll read it anyway. Sitting for hours on end is not necessary. <laughs> Some people think the longer you can sit, the wiser you must be. I've seen chickens sitting on their nests for days on end. But this gets back to the real thing. Wisdom comes from being mindful in all postures. Your practice should begin as soon as you awaken in the morning. It should continue until you fall asleep. Don't be concerned how long you can sit. What's important is that you keep watchful, whether you're working, sitting, going to the bathroom. Each person has his or own, her own natural pace. Some of you will die at age 50, some at age 65, some at age 90. So too, your practice will not be all identical. Don't think or worry about this. Just be mindful and let things take their natural course. Then your mind will become quieter and quieter in any surroundings. It will become still like a clear forest pool. Then all kinds of wonderful and rare animals will come to drink at the pool. You will see clearly the nature of all things in the world. You will see many wonderful and strange things come and go, but you will be still. This is the happiness of a Buddha. May all beings realize the end of suffering. May all beings be filled with tenderness and mercy. Thank you for your attention. You're right on track. We have about uh, 35 minutes for walking and there'll be some chanting at the next sitting. um... Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.